Hey, welcome to another bonus episode of History and Film. These haven't really been a regular thing yet, but will just kind of pop up when I have another movie I want to mention that may be redundant to one already in the list, or one comes to my attention on the fly. I'm also no longer not really planning on being super strict about the official list being exactly 100 movies, but it'll still be close. I also want to warn you that I do plan on taking a hiatus after episode 25. I'll be getting into track season, and rather than just having episodes come out at random as I get them done, I'll take a break from releasing and get the next batch stockpiled until I can do another run of 25 uninterrupted. Hopefully just taking the summer off, maybe. I'll be working on them the whole time, but as far as your podcast feed goes, it'll hopefully be just the summer. And before we get into today's movie, I thought I'd share a bit about my process. If you've made it this far, you may be interested. And if this is the first episode you're listening to, what are you doing? Pick an earlier one. Start at, start at the beginning. Or at least jump back one to the Beckett episode. If you'd rather just jump ahead to my discussion on The Lion in Winter, I'll post the time in the show notes and you can just skip ahead. So I spent the spring of 2017 coming up with my initial list of movies. I would research time periods and different countries and see what movies were set then or there. When I found a promising one, I checked reviews to make sure it was at least halfway decent. Then if it passed, it went in an Excel spreadsheet in chronological order based on the story in the film. For each movie, I take notes on my iPad while watching, noting especially any proper nouns that are significant. I'll usually turn on captions as well so I can help spell the ones that are tougher to pronounce. Afterward, what's really handy is I can use OneNote on the iPad and I copy and paste Wikipedia articles so that I can then physically, well, digitally, highlight lines with the iPad pencil, the Apple Pencil, like right into the uh, OneNote. Now, I've noticed that every time I bring up Wikipedia, even outside of the context of this podcast, people scoff at its reliability. But honestly, it has a bad reputation because of its origins and structure, a crowdsourced encyclopedia. Are you serious? Are there mistakes? Sure. Do trolls intentionally vandalize it? No doubt. But I want you to go to Wikipedia right now and find one of those mistakes. Pages that are up to snuff are locked to prevent tampering. Errors in vandalism are reported and fixed. And yeah, there's more stuff on there than can be ever 100% or even 95% properly cultivated, but I'll argue it's one of humanity's great achievements. I have found articles that aren't very well written or obviously written by someone who isn't a native English speaker, and I try to cross-reference different articles against each other or find another website, and if something contradicts, I just don't include it. I'm obviously understaffed, it's just me. And the result isn't perfect, but hey, we're all learning a little bit, right? I do write a full word-for-word -word script for each episode. This is by far the most time-consuming part of the process. It's roughly a four-page, single-spaced essay per episode. I stick pretty close to it while I record, which I'm doing right now on GarageBand on my Mac with a Snowball external microphone. If I flub a line, I just say it again and take out the bad one when I'm editing, again in GarageBand. That's fairly tedious as well and takes about an hour and a half to edit a 15-minute episode, and that's if I don't have to re-record anything. After that, it's just a matter of processing, scheduling, uploading straight to your ears for free. Which, yeah, I still need to figure out monetization, whether through ads or Patreon, but right now all my time is going into creation. Oh, and my numbering system, I know it probably seems a bit odd, but I'm trying to plan ahead. A three-digit episode number allows me to go past 100 episodes and still have everything sort correctly alphanumerically. Otherwise, episode 100 might go next to episode 10. 
not in the podcast feed, but it's more for my purposes. And the W just stands for World History, as I'm still wanting to follow this list up with an American History 100 that will lead with an A. And there's one page down of this episode. Okay, moving on. Today we continue the story of Henry II, King of England. We left him paying public penance over the death of Thomas Becket. This did take place about four years after Becket's death at Canterbury. But what the movie Becket had no time to get into was the revolt against Henry by his three oldest sons, supported by their mother. This was after Becket had died, but before the public penance. In fact, part of the reason Henry may have felt compelled to perform his penance was a feeling that their rebellion was God punishing him for Becket's death. Basically, even though Henry had crowned his son, Henry the Young King, as co-regent, he gave him no real power or money, and the boy, now 18, was growing frustrated. Also, as he never ruled by himself, the young Henry is not Henry III, and that name will go to a later king of England. So Richard and Geoffrey, who were about 16 and 15 respectively at the time, felt slighted by their father as well. They were encouraged by their mother to join with their brother, the young king, in what became an open conflict after Henry II gave three of the young king's castles to his youngest son, John, who would have been only six or seven years old. The older boys fled to Paris and the aid of King Louis VII of France, but their mother was captured by Henry and placed under house arrest. Remember from Becket that Henry's wife here is Eleanor of Aquitaine, who had been previously married to King Louis before having eight children with Henry. The boys actually had a lot of support. Many nobles thought they could improve their own lots if the boys were able to oust their father. But ultimately, the king's forces just won most of the battles, and Louis requested that peace be negotiated. Land concessions were granted to his sons, but Henry came out of the ordeal in an even stronger position than he had been in before. These tensions made the line of succession now less certain and nearly bring us to the beginning of The Lion in Winter. Though the film is not meant to be a sequel to Beckett, it does give us Peter O'Toole again playing Henry II of England. The movie is set around Christmas in 1183 and presents a fictional family gathering with many of the real-life relationship dynamics at play. In the year or two leading up to this, young Henry rekindled his own rebellion. This time Richard joined with his father against the young king, but before anything really got going, young Henry died of illness. This was in the summer of 1183, so about six months before our movie today. As the movie opens, we see Henry hanging out in a field with his mistress Alice. Alice is actually a daughter of King Louis of France. When she was just eight years old, she had been betrothed to Richard, then just 12 himself, and sent to England to be Henry's ward. By 1183, she would have been 22 and may indeed have been the king's mistress, as we see in the film. John is nearby, training with a sword master. Henry mentions to Alice that John will succeed him. As I researched after watching the movies, this line in particular confused me, but in light of John's rebellious older brothers, it makes sense. Also, historically, during the initial revolt, a very young John traveled around with his father and did become Henry's favorite. The rest of the movie is at Henry's home in Chinon in France, where he has also scheduled a negotiation with the new king of France. Louis VII had died three years earlier, and his son, the 18-year-old Philip II, was now king, so he had been just 15 when his father died. Also remember that he was the younger brother of Alice, who we've met. Henry's wife, the Queen Eleanor, is escorted to Chinon from her prison in England for the holidays. Eleanor is played by Catherine Hepburn. She had not played her in Beckett, but again, they all but ignore Eleanor in that story. Hepburn portrays the Queen as sassy and quick-witted, She'll flirt with and threaten Henry in the same breath. She's long accepted his chain of mistresses and doesn't seem phased, but we also see her jealous of Alice at times, whom she helped raise before being imprisoned. 
Richard, John, and their middle brother Jeffrey are there as well, with Philip coming in and out of the movie for various negotiations. Richard is played by a young Sir Anthony Hopkins in only his second movie role and portrayed as humorless, ambitious, and powerful. He wants the throne and makes no attempt to hide it. He is the oldest living son after the death of young Henry. John, though Henry's favorite, is played as a cretinous buffoon. He's stupid and cowardly. He's actually played by Nigel Terry, who also played King Arthur in the film Excalibur. And caught in the middle is the manipulative Jeffrey. No one outside himself even brings up the thought that he could be king as well. Again, it's less confusing when you know that he and Richard had both betrayed their father in the past. So honestly, it's just far, far too complicated and boring to try to explain all the dealings and double-crossing that goes on between these characters while they're together here over Christmas. And as the exact details are mostly invented for the movie, I won't even bother. But there are definitely grains of truth to it all. It all comes down to land deals, marriage alliances, and the line of succession. It's definitely worth watching. It makes perfect sense when you're watching the movie. But again, it'd take me the entire runtime of the movie to recap it. I do, however, want to mention my favorite scene in the movie. It didn't happen in real life, but does capture the family dynamics. Having become fed up with everyone, Henry locks all three of his sons in the cellar and says he's going to marry Alice to conceive a new heir. Eleanor smuggles in three daggers to the boys so they can make their escape. But the boys then say they should just wait until their father comes down and kill him. Henry does soon come down. Richard pulls a knife. Henry then calmly walks forward to the chest that the queen had brought and grabs the two other daggers laying in it. Never one to back down from a fight, Henry tosses these two daggers to Jeffrey and John and pulls out his own knife and says, Come for me! Despite their earlier tough talk, the boys are scared. I keep saying boys. Yeah, John is about 17, but Richard and Jeffrey would be in their mid-20s by now. Henry further taunts them and says, What's wrong? You're Richard, aren't you? Richard, by this time, had a decade-long reputation of success as a warrior in general, but his only response to his father is, But you're Henry. Ultimately, the movie never tells us what Henry decides to do about his kingdom, and the movie ends with him wishing Eleanor well as she sails back to prison. The film is largely an existential one, with an all-powerful king and the wife to match, coming to grips with the reality that they won't live forever. The Lion and Winner was nominated for seven Academy Awards, winning three, including Best Actress for Katherine Hepburn, though she actually tied with Barbara Streisand for Funny Girl. They received the exact same number of votes. Peter O'Toole became the second person to be nominated twice for playing the same role. It's been done four times since. Set more than a decade apart, the movies were released just four years apart. In Beckett, O'Toole himself was 32 and played Henry from age 29 to about 37, 41 if you count his penance at the tomb at the end. In The Lion and Winter, O'Toole was 36 and playing a 50-year-old Henry. Hepburn was spot on. She was 61 at the time, the same age Eleanor of Aquitaine would have been. The queen was 11 years older than her husband. So, what happened? How did things end for our friend Henry II? Even after the death of young Henry, Henry II still had conflicts with his other sons. Richard seems to have been the clear choice of heir, but also refused to relinquish lands his father wanted to give to John. A couple years after the time of today's movie, Geoffrey died in France. It's unclear if he died at a jousting tournament or of sudden illness. Regardless, this left Henry with just two sons, Richard and John. Jerusalem fell the following year, and though still were all rivals, Henry, Richard, and Philip of France all planned to join a new crusade. Before these plans get off the ground, Henry and Richard went at each other again. Here was a speculation that Henry might openly disown Richard and name John his heir. Richard teamed up with Philip, and their joint force fought against Henry. The king spent these months also suffering from a bleeding ulcer, and he was finally taken to Chinon to rest. 
There he learned his favorite John had actually sided with Richard in the recent conflict, and he died soon after. He was 56 years old. I would say most of us first heard of John and Richard through the Robin Hood stories. Robin Hood himself should be viewed similarly to King Arthur. He's legend and folklore with no hard evidence to actually support his existence. And you could argue those stories leave out a key figure, Eleanor of Aquitaine, the mother of Richard and John. After Henry died, Richard immediately ordered her released. Richard was rarely in England during his reign. He treated England basically like one of his many properties and used his kingship over it to fund his other excursions. He supposedly even said he'd sell London if only he could find a buyer. It was Eleanor who ruled in Richard's name while he was away, not John like we often see in Robin Hood, though John did try to undermine Richard's power. A year after Richard was crowned, he went off to join the Third Crusade. He never ended up marrying Alice of France, but did marry a Spanish princess, though they had no children. Richard earned his nickname Lionheart during his battles in the Holy Land. On his way home, he was captured and held for ransom by the Holy Roman Emperor. His mother Eleanor negotiated his release. Then, while in one of his many conflicts over lands in France, Richard took an arrow in the top of his shoulder near the neck. The wound got infected, and it ultimately led to his death. He'd been king for just under 10 years and was 41 years old when he died. His brother John then became king of England, the youngest of the eight children of Henry II of Eleanor of Aquitaine. John doesn't seem to have been as competent as his counterpart Philip II of France, who was finally able to claim most of the English holdings in France for France itself. Powerful English barons pressured King John into signing the famed Magna Carta in 1215, but this event in and of itself isn't as significant as we're led to believe. Both parties basically ignored the treaty and continued fighting with the barons hoping to replace John on the throne with the French prince Louis, son of Philip II. Louis was married to John's niece, the granddaughter of Henry and Eleanor. The Pope even declared the Magna Carta null and void. During his campaigns against the barons, John contracted dysentery and died, leaving his nine-year-old son to rule as Henry III. The barons decided that this arrangement was to their advantage and abandoned the ambitions of Louis in favor of a child king they could more easily influence. Anyway, I don't mean to run through every English monarch point by point, though it definitely interests me, but I wanted to get us through the characters we know from The Lion of Winter. And the lasting significance of the Magna Carta was simply that it served as a starting point for the conversation that no one was above the law and the king couldn't be a tyrant. The original version may have been obsolete, but later versions under later kings did work their way into English law. A few other loose ends from the movie. Poor Alice, the French princess and Henry's mistress who was used as a pawn in all those royal plans. After she was spurned by Richard, her brother married her off to a lesser French lord. Her great-granddaughter would become the first wife of King Edward I, Longshanks, and mother of Edward II, both of whom will meet in Braveheart in about a month. The Lion of Winter also contains a revelation that Richard and Philip of France had been lovers when they were younger. This isn't completely invented for the movie, but historical evidence seems pretty scant. The close friendship between Geoffrey and Philip seems even more suspect to me, with some reporting that Philip, in his grief, may have even moved to join Geoffrey in his coffin. But again, not hard evidence. Oh, and what is Aquitaine? I've mentioned it a million times. It's a region in southwest France that belonged to Eleanor after the death of her father, basically the reason she was so rich and so sought after. It was also a significant piece of the puzzle for why England controlled more of France than France did before Philip II reclaimed most of it. And Eleanor is probably an appropriate place in this episode. She remained relevant in all of this English version of the Game of Thrones most of her life. 
Even being held capture by her French grandson and one of King John's rivals, she died in 1204 when she was about 82 years old. Her exact date of birth isn't known. Okay, yeah, that's all I had for now. Thanks for listening. Do me a favor, tell your friends and enemies about my podcast. I know it has its flaws, but I still think it's a pretty cool idea. And catch you later. <laughs>